You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Let's get right into it here, and we're going to start with Delaware versus North Dakota State last weekend. I am wearing currently my North Dakota State Bison shirt. It is a great shirt, I will say that. Uh, Delaware looked pretty bad, if I can be totally honest with you. Delaware lost 38-10. to 10. It was a great experience, uh, not only for the football team, but for Brandon and I traveling out there. Doug, we're going to go to you here. What was your just initial takeaway? You know, after you saw the score, after you saw the kind of game pace, what was your initial takeaway for this matchup? Well, just seeing the score, I mean, you see if you look at the stats and the recap, uh, North Dakota State scored on their first drive after uh, getting the kickoff first, and then they got a pick six right after that on the first play. So right there, uh, Delaware already dug themselves into a 14 nothing hole against arguably the best team in the country in terms of FCS. And really since then, I mean, they scored their 10 points in the final quarter where you don't really know uh, North Dakota State could have been just having their second or third team out for defense. So it's not really counting much. I mean, at least they didn't get blanked on the scoreboard. But at the same time, at that point, the game was really decided. And I was just looking at some of the drives. The first two drives... um, Let's see, I have it up right here. One sec. Really, for the first whole half, they didn't have a drive that lasted more than like four plays. And that either ended in interceptions or punts for the whole first half. So that's really not a way. I mean, and it's just, it's weird to see that because I feel like against Cornell, uh, the UD offense was looking pretty good. I mean, their defense was playing great and put them in good field position. But their offense was moving the ball, and Pat Kehoe, in that game against Cornell, he threw for 254 yards, only one touchdown. He also was able to run one in. But it's kind of similar stats in terms of completions on on attempts, 14 for 29 in that game against Cornell the week before, and then in this game, he was 11 for 29. But the big, big difference is three picks. And um, I actually read a stat, any time that uh, Delaware – has more than one turnover in the game. They're let, um, they're below 500 in those games for the past couple of years. Yeah, and you can see right off the bat, uh, the first throw of Pat Kehoe's game against North Dakota State was a across-his-body interception ended in a pick six. And that was about as early as, uh, as we call it, a dagger that I've seen that kind of just took every single um, breath of hope out of this Delaware team because then the defense had to come back. And the North Dakota State quarterback, Easton Stick, kind of... Did what he wanted. I mean, yeah. he's 280 yards uh, in the air. He was great on the ground. He's a dual threat quarterback. And that kind of just stopped right there. Delaware had to get back on the field. Their defense, they couldn't get the stop. They had 21 points, about as fast as you can imagine, yep. finishing with 28 points in the first quarter. We'll go to you, Nick. What, I mean, what does that do for a team that is coming in, playing the number one team, six out of seven of the past national championships, the one that they didn't win was against JMU? What does that do for a team's morale that, they came in here knowing we can make this interesting and then going down 21 nothing in about a blink of an eye. Well, I think this first shows how good of a team North Dakota State really is. You know, you hear they win, like you said, 6 out of 7. Me, personally, I knew nothing about them. But after seeing this game, I said, okay, this team is really good. And like you said, throwing a pick 6 on the first drive, even if they go, you know, 12 plays, or not even 12, 12 is a lot, actually, 8 plays, 2 or 3 first downs, then they punt. That's still something better than you throwing that pick 6 because at least the defense has some time to sit you know, get catch their breath and then come back onto the field and then lay down seven nothing. At this point, 
They're down 14 nothing, and then the offense gets the ball again. And like you said, North Dakota State took only six more minutes for them to score and make it 21 nothing. So it just really stung that Delaware turned it over that early in the game because even if they didn't score right away, but if they just, you know, managed the clock better, I think it would have helped them overall. So Delaware comes out 21 points on the board for North Dakota State with four minutes and 52 seconds in the first quarter. Then Bruce Anderson received, had another 18-yard reception for Easton Stick with 2.48 left in the first quarter to put them up 28 nothing. The largest lead was 38-0. This was after Cam Peterson had a 34-yard field goal, the first real stop Delaware got that entire game. And then Delaware followed up with the final two scores of the game. The first one, Frank Rago had a 33-yard field goal to put three points on the board, and then a Malcolm Brown 92-yard fumble recovery on dead play with about a minute 57 left. What, I mean, looked if anything, what looked good for this Blue Hen team? Was it their offense, their defense, their willingness to fight till the end as they put 10 points and at least won the second half of football? I think that's the best way of putting it, that way you ended that, their willingness, you know, to end the game. And we talked about how they like they end games, I guess, semi-strong, because uh, I know that me and Brandon talked about it when they played, um, who they play? Lafayette. They're up 35 nothing, and you love to see them get a safety with, what, a minute left in the game? So that's something you can't take away from this team. They're always going to fight whether they're up 37 nothing or whether they're down 38 nothing. So I think... It's nice to see them score at least 10 points on this good of a team. And, I mean, I guess that's something positive moving forward. Yeah, I'm not going to really say that their offense had many positive spots, unfortunately. I mean, like you said, uh, Kehoe threw across his body for the first pick, which ended up to be six the other way. But I guess, uh, just going along with what Nick said, in this situation, you know you're playing the best team in the country in, in the FCS. And you're coming into this game, yeah, you're, um, UD's going into the game 2-1, and one, but they kind of had a, a really disappointing loss uh, against a team that they really shouldn't have lost to in URI in the first game of the season. And then really after that, I mean, it's not like, like you said, it's not like um, North Dakota State was making exceptional plays on defense. It was just more sloppy play by UD offense. So, I mean, they got to adjust to that in terms of going into next week, but I mean, bright spot, like we're talking about, they they fought till the end. They at least didn't get blanked on the scoreboard. They put up 10 points. Yeah, it was in almost dead time in terms of that uh, fumble recovery. But they got to look at just the few positives that came from the game and really focus on how to make adjustments. And it's it's tough to do it because you're going into this game, you're playing the best team. You know that the best that is going to happen is you're going to make the game interesting, and they didn't do that, so... It's tough, and this could be determining how they look at the rest of their season. If they're kind of going to fold in terms of the rest of their season, like, oh, we just got um, like beat pretty badly by the best team in the country. How are we going to rebound and go on with the rest of our season still playing competitive football and still playing some tough teams in the CAA? With Richmond, last year the Richmond game went into overtime before they were able to pull out that win. So, I mean, Richmond's not going to be an easy opponent. But I think you have to take this loss and come back with, like, fire in the next game in terms of trying to beat the next opponent. So when we talk about this game against North Dakota State, there are two sides to the coin. You either say, this was a great learning experience for the Blue Hens. They learned a lot. It was a great experience. Or how I think of it is this was a terrible loss. This was straight-up disappointing. And I think that shows the two uh, opinions of the Blue Hen team. If you think this was a great learning experience— you might have not seen the Blue Hens as competitors. You might have not. You don't think the Blue Hens are competitors this year because, in my eyes, 
I saw this Blue Hen team being a potential top team in the CAA, a, a real threat for this deep run in the playoffs. I don't think they would win the playoffs, but a deep run in the playoffs. So this is no Virginia Tech, given the talent of North Dakota State. This is no Virginia Tech. This is no Penn State we're going to see in a few years. Those are learning experiences. Those are teams that you play and you say, we get blanked 75 nothing. we're still going to come away with positives. This is a team that, yes, they're the number one team, but they're in our playoff bracket. They're in our grasp. They played JMU last year. They played Richmond in 2015 with Danny Rocco as the head coach. I just don't see the whole learning experience when it comes to this game because they needed to make this competitive. This is a disappointing loss. This is going to hurt the Blue Hens in rankings. This is going to hurt the Blue Hens in scheduling, and it's going to hurt the Blue Hens overall and morale-wise. So I'll go to you two. And do you take this as more of a learning experience side of the coin or just a downright disappointing loss? Um, I mean, in terms of learning experience, at least you got to look at the team. Let's say that they go on and run the table for the rest of their schedule, which is unlikely, but it's still possible if they are able to rebound and take some positives. You've already gotten a good look at this team. So let's say if they have to face them down the line in the playoffs, if they're able to make it that far, you've already had a look at them. And they might be underestimating uh, the Blue Hens, which, I mean, based on their performance, they probably think that they'll be able to come with, away with an easy win again. That's the only thing I can think of in terms of like a learning experience. And like you said, Penn State's going to be a learning experience. It's kind of, it's like, I don't want to compare it to Penn State, but it's a, a mini step towards that direction in terms of you're playing a team that you know is a lot better than you. I mean, Penn State is going to be 10 times better than North Dakota State in terms of not only are they in the FBS, but they're a top team in the FBS. At least they were last year. And they could still be competitive a couple of years from now. We don't really know what it's going to be like, but they're definitely... It's hard to imagine Penn State not being yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, and they play in a tough conference in the Big Ten, so... And that stadium is just enough as yeah. it is. But, I mean, from my point of view, I 100% agree with you, Jake. I feel like... This was the year, you know, we obviously, going into this year, we thought this was the year for Delaware, the city that can compete. And you look at the game against Virginia Tech and you say, that, like you said, that's a learning experience and you use that moving forward. I think they should have probably took what they learned from that. Obviously, not all the same players were on the team last year as they were this year, but a majority of them were. And they should have said, you know, we know what happened against Virginia Tech last year. We expe- You don't want to say you expected to lose, but you expected to lose that game. Then you come into this game, you're going in North Dakota State. It was their homecoming, too, I'm pretty sure. So, I mean, add some fire to the tank for them. But... You know, you expect to have a good game, and you say, hey, we're going to compete. You don't say to yourself coming out of the game, we're not 28 points worse than North Dakota State, I think. And in that type of aspect, I, I agree with you in the sense that it was a, I don't, it was a bad experience. But, you know, hopefully it, they do better moving forward, and it helps them in the long run. So let's kind of look at this going forward now. The Blue Hens lost. They are now sitting at 2-2, two and 0-1 two, and one in the CAA. Doug shadowed at the 0-1 is due to the loss against Rhode Island. They have an off week this weekend, and then Nick and I will travel out to Richmond to get their second game and the real Kickstarter of CAA play against a familiar foe. Last year, they went into overtime. Two years ago, Rocco um, was still the head coach of that team uh, when they had a decent team led by all-CAA quarterback Kyle Lawletta. Lawletta is now on the New York Giants after being drafted. Where does this team stand CAA-wise? And the rankings are not that important, but where do you see them talent-wise? Because you have your unexpected. Rhode Island, led by Juwan Lawson, has been 
mm-hmm. pretty unreal. Yeah. You don't expect that. Maine took down uh, New Hampshire, who New Hampshire was supposed to be one of the best teams in the conference, and Maine upset them uh, on the same day that Delaware got upset by Rhode Island. Where do you think Delaware falls? What's the vibe around this Delaware team? I think we're, you know, I don't think we're a top-tier team. You know, obviously, I mean, I don't think Rhode Island's going to stay at the top. But like you said, James Madison's up there and some other teams. But I think we could be at three or four in the division. And I know, obviously, that tough loss to Rhode Island's going to hurt them in the end. But I think moving forward, I think they're still going to have a strong, you know, rest of their season, hopefully, if everything works out well. And I see them finishing, you know, maybe three, third or fourth in the CAA. Um, for me right now, they're just a middle-of-the-pack CAA team, as not like interesting as that sounds, and it kind of is disappointing for all the hype that I think Delaware had coming into this season. But if you look at the teams up there, I mean, they lost Rhode Island, but they still have to play Towson, they play Elon, they play uh, Villanova. So they have opportunities to beat these teams in conference, which could kind of boost them up towards possibly like a three or four spot in the CAA. Hopefully, you would like to see them um, beat all those teams, finish their schedule at ten and or um, sorry, eight and two. Would it be nine, eight and two? They would and be ten, over ten. overall. They if they win out, it would be, be ten, ten and two. Yeah. Ten and two. So I mean, you would like to see that, but Villanova that final game is going to be tough. Um, like you said, in two weeks, Richmond's going to be tough. There's not a ton of just easy wins because they're all in conference. So you got to think that all of these teams are fighting for the same thing. They're fighting for those potential playoff spots. And so it's going to be tough. I mean, maybe they could finish around third or fourth, but realistically I see them just finishing middle of the pack this year. You're listening to 91.3 WVUD Blue Hen Sports Cage, Jake Lampert, and the array of people from 91.3 radio station, Nick DeLaglio and Doug Barron, helping us out on the call right now. The remaining games of CAA play, well, like we said, we have a break, and then comes Richmond, followed by Elon and New Hampshire, which is, I'll add Towson to that, Elon, New Hampshire, and Towson, which are real powerhouses when you think of Delaware-wise, kind of the thorn in their side. Towson kind of spoiled anything that the Blue Hens thought of in playoff hopes. New Hampshire is supposed to be the top team, and Elon came out of nowhere last year. Follow that with Albany, Stony Brook, and Nova. Winnable games. Stony mm-hmm. Brook was tough, but they're winnable games. Where do you see the Blue Hen make-or-break point be? Do you think that Stony Brook and Villanova are going to be the make-or-breaks for the Blue Hens to make the playoffs? Or do you think by the time we get there, we'll know if this Blue Hen team is going to be a playoff team or this Blue Hen team is going to be looking for next season? I'm going to be honest. I think this week again, this next upcoming week against Richmond is going to say tell us a lot about this team because thus far we've seen a tough loss to Rhode Island and we saw the pounding by North Dakota State, which, I mean, we didn't expect, but, you know, you didn't think they were going to win that. And then you have two wins against teams that aren't good at all. No offense to them, Lafayette and Cornell. So this game against Richmond, 2-2, two and two, I think it's going to be a real – we're going to them. I think it's going to be a real task, uh, and it's going to show how the rest of the season is going to play out, especially in the CAA. For me, I think up to leading up to and the game against Towson, which is homecoming, because you have two games on the road, Richmond on October 6th, New Hampshire on October 20th. Then you, in between those, you have Elon at home. But including that Towson game, because it's homecoming, you would like to see uh, fans getting out there supporting. It's also parents' weekend, I believe. So it should be a packed stadium, you would hope so. And um, if UD can win, I would say hopefully all four of those games. But three out of those four games, 
then you could still say that they're in the hunt for making the playoffs. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. And the temperature in this room just dropped by a solid 50 to 60 degrees because as hockey season comes around, so does Eric's Igloo. We welcome Eric Allen back in. And it's not just Eric's Igloo. We are going to do Eric and Rachel's Igloo. We'll see if uh, Eric and I will talk after the show if we're allowed to make that name change. But we welcome not only Eric Allen but Rachel Sorky into the studio for our next two from the Blue Hen Sports Cage and 91.3 Committee. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for coming out to join us. Yeah, thanks for having us. You know, I just I was walking over here and it felt like I stepped outside the Igloo. Um, but uh, good to get back at it again. Rachel, is this your first time on Blue Hen Sports Cage? This is. This is my first time so, well, here. So hopefully we'll give you a good one here. And this is kind of a weird place for me to be in because last year I sat where Eric is sitting, which is kind of in the corner of the studio. Brandon and I sat on that side, and Teddy and Ahmed sat on this side. And whenever we had Eric's igloo, Eric would usually take my seat because I have nothing to add to the hockey segment, <laughs> and I'd go sit outside of Ahmed and we just chat a little bit. And from what I see, Eric and Teddy just kind of stared at each other down. It was a really intense hockey segment because Brandon would be the host. He'd kind of bounce the questions off, and Eric and Teddy would just go at it and talk everything about hockey. And I don't feel like I can bring that same energy because I really don't know much about hockey. And before we started the show, I was texting one of my friends, Justin, and I was like, listen, I'm going to show you on the dock. You got to give me like a 10-second rundown on everything in here so I don't sound totally clueless. Mm-hmm. So I at least have things to talk about, but you all did a great job in the doc giving me at least a few topics here. Oh yeah, we got about four pages here of we, stuff. We so did. I mean, you made you had to make a whole separate a whole separate document. You're like, oh, let me take this out of the whole rundown just so it's not so crowded. So we're gonna start with UD hockey. UD hockey's underway. They started their season a few games ago. They are fairly new look. They have a bunch of returners, but they're stars, quote unquote. Um, are kind of moved off. I mean, you still have there. He'll be their kind of leader. Give me a quick rundown of what we can expect for UD hockey this upcoming season. Um, well, we have 10 rookies this season. And, um, you know, again, a lot of the stars left. Uh, Zucker's gone. Mullen's gone. Um, we don't have a red gate on the team this year for the first time in, what, five years, yep. Eric? Yeah, so five years, uh, we don't have a red gate on the team. Um, but we do have a lot of returners. We have Mozella and Niski uh, back. We're expecting them to step up and kind of take the lead this year. Yeah, another change with the team is uh, assistant coach Alex Rubin, who's been great to WVUD, um, and the whole media thing down there. He had a, the video set up the video thing. Uh, he's uh, decided to step away for the t- uh, from the team uh, to pursue other exciting opportunities in his career um, outside of hockey, I believe. Um, not exactly sure 100% on the details, but there is some changing of the guard there, New, a few shakeups in the coaching staff. Mike Redgate, that was a surprise. I was not expecting him to leave. He was supposed to be entering into, I believe it was his junior year, um, but instead he's no longer on the roster. So, I mean, now it's just fully time for Mazella and Niski to take that position that Cole Zucker last year and the Redgate, uh, John Redgate and his younger brother Mike Redgate took before that and really carry this team because those two, the Zucker and Redgate name has just been associated with this team for as long as I've been a, a student here um, and a little bit before that. Um, but um, they've got new goaltenders. Chris Bonicello looks like he'll be the starter. It'll be interesting to see if they split time. But what I think is really interesting is they have this new guy who's a freshman who's, like I think, like 26. He's a goalie. He's six foot eight and two hundred sixty pounds, so uh, it might be interesting to see him in that. Yeah, we'll see where he comes in. Uh, we he wasn't um, 
he didn't. It was Ponticello played the entire first game last weekend, um, and I think we talked about that last season as well. We were kind of we were wondering who's gonna is it gonna still be Stephen East? Is he gonna get you know is he gonna be the starter because he was last year? And then towards the end of the season, Ponticello started coming in, playing a little bit more, and then he played the whole game last weekend, and it, and he did great. But then also, you know, we also got some hints at the end of last season, like well, we we got someone coming in and. He's going to be great. So now he's here, and we're waiting for his debut because I'm definitely I, – I, he's 6'8", and he's massive. I mean, I, I want to know what he can do. It yeah. does have to be hard to score on somebody that's 6'8", 200-plus pounds. He's going to take up the whole net. A good comparison is Ben Bishop. Uh, and there's a, like, the, the size movement is like uh, – it seems to be a thing. They want bigger goaltenders uh, that take up more space. Uh, but that goaltender's name is Nikon Yazdani. Um, he wasn't dressed yesterday, so we'll be waiting to see what happens there. But this team, um, you know, they've got to get more from Jandoli. Uh, he ended the season last year with a hat trick. Uh, he he always looks good on the ice, but he just has to finish. You got young people like Zimmer on defense. Young needs to present leadership, and they need to stay out of the box. They lost um, their first game against Westchester. They had a great first period, a weak second, and then a strong final 10 minutes of the third. But, you know, that's not enough to beat... A uh, team like Westchester, who actually typically isn't that great, um, but we had, we had the same we had the same outcome this year as we did last year with the first game. They lost to the same team the first game, um, and I I think it's the same problem. They they come out and they they came out strong, you know, and Westchester did not come out as strong. But Westchester was the type of team to build and build and build and get better as the game went on, and Delaware couldn't step up. It wasn't that they were falling behind it's that they weren't creating any new momentum yeah well you know this team's just trying to figure out their legs and uh, how they want to play as a team and you know you got to pay attention and follow this team down the road because uh two years ago they were headed to the a big championship uh tournament before they got kicked out of it by the school um but the next game's coming up are october 5th and 6th against liberty be sure to turn uh be sure to tune in to those um and we'll have much more exciting blue hands hockey coverage here on WVUD. So let me ask you both before we get to the NHL. You talked about how Niski and Mazzella are the two kind of new role guys. They finished behind Cole Zucker with 42 and 41 points respectively. Zucker led the team with 53. Between the two of them, real quick, who do you think has the more um, instant impact on this team? I personally think that's Niski. His speed is evident when you see him when you're close to the ice. You just see him flying around guys. Um, but Mazzella is that, that smart kind of like two-way player. Um, where he definitely chips on on offense, but I also you don't see those defensive flaws, um, which can also allow Niski to move and take some bigger risks. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Niski. That's whenever you whenever you talk about Niski, you think about speed. And I talked about this uh, at the game when we called the game last last weekend. Just watching him, I can I will never get tired of that. Watching him just fly down the ice. Um, I mean, so I, I really think. He's he's the one. Yeah. So let's look at NHL hockey here. The season is getting underway real soon. Uh, besides talking about the Flyers mascot, which yeah. I think can take up a large majority of the show, if you want to yeah. Google it, for sure Google it. Make sure the lights are on because it's slightly terrifying. <laughs> let's get to the teams here. First of all, I think my biggest uh, hype show is the Vegas Golden Knights. They had a great Cinderella season last year. They added a few significant pieces here and there, but... Only time will tell if they're going to be as good as they were last year. Where do they fall? Do you think that their Cinderella run was actually not a Cinderella run, that it was a real hockey move, 
or do you just think it was a Cinderella run they're going to rebuild? Um, so... I think I mean I think that they've they've got a real shot at at coming back and uh and competing for the cup. I mean, they came out last year. It was it was absolutely a shock to everyone. An expansion team is not supposed to make it to the final. They're not. They're just not. And Vegas completely defied all odds. Um I, I think the face of the team is uh Mike Andre Fleury. I mean, he's he's like a, he's a god and he's absolutely just if if he hadn't missed uh, two months last season with uh, with concussion, I I think he would have gotten the Vizina. Yeah, I think that uh, Flurry he is God. Um, he, I mean he's a flower after all. Uh, his nickname <laughs> is Flower. Um, I do, I agree. I thought he would uh, was a good candidate for the Vesna, but um, I I just think I think you're right. It was the concussions, but even then I think he should have they should have given him more consideration. But this team has done a lot. Uh, to improve too, they lost two big names, David Perron and uh, James Neal, and also defenseman Lucas Abiza. Um, also, Nate Schmidt was suspended for the start of the season. But James Neal is a big player; he can give you like 30 to 40 goals. That's a big loss. David Perron, he contributed too, but to compensate for that, they brought in Paul Stastny, who is an elite signing, uh, probably one of the top guys you could have gotten in this off season. Uh, he'll be a either first or second line center for them. Um, I think Carlson might take a little bit of a step back. That's William Carlson. Um, him putting up the numbers he did last year, I think he's. I, I've always thought he's been a, a good player and would become a good player, but I do not think he's going to sustain a 40 goal season most years. Um, and they also brought in Max Pacioretty, trading out Thomas Tatar and a top prospect. I thought that was another good, good move to bring in some veteran leadership and improve their depth because this is a young team with a lot of young prospects. Let's take a look at another team here. And like I said before, my hockey knowledge is not the. Uh... The most, but again, I texted one of my friends, Justin, and the one thing we talked about a lot when I was home was number 91. Jonathan Tavares going from um, the Islanders all the way over to Toronto Maple Leafs, and that was kind of a big hit for the team, uh, not only skill-wise, but morale-wise. And he posted the picture, I think, a few hours later of him when he was a child sleeping in a a Maple Leafs bedsheet set, and it was kind of a, a, a bittersweet moment that he's moving to the Maple Leafs. They probably weren't going to make the playoffs with or without Jonathan Tavares. But now they're going more lottery pick-wise to see if they can build on a team that they have and the young guys in the system. Without talking about the Islanders, let's go to the other side, the Maple Leafs. What is that addition for a guy that has grown probably more than people would have expected to? How does that help that team? And is that team kind of really poised to do something this year. Before I mention uh, the Maple Leafs, I do want to go back to the Islanders. I think that really hurts them because I think they have they do have those prospects that they could put together like somewhat a decent season, but they're going to be a bottom two team in the uh, Metro Division, which is a tough division. And they tried to bring in Barry uh, Trotz, the uh, head coach of the Capitals, who just won a cup with them, moved over, trying to keep him. Um, and that's a huge hit to that fan base um, who've also already been struggling with that. Um, but now going over to Toronto, that team is elite, but I don't think it helps them as much as it hurts the Islanders because when you look at a team like the Penguins, they have, I saw the thing, arguably, easily arguably three top players of this generation uh, currently playing for them, Malkin and Crosby, and I would say McDavid's probably the other one. Um, and when you look at that, this other team, they have Austin Matthews, they have Marner, they have Nylander, they have Patrick Marleau, um, or no, they is it him or Pavelski or it's Marlowe, yeah. yeah. Um I was gonna say, don't look at me. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think right. I think I think uh the Leafs they they are a young team. 
um, you know, but and and they are absolutely elite. And I think Tavares coming on is, I think he's going to be a leader, and I think um, he's definitely going to lead these young guys, even though they're already fantastic and they're they're leading and in uh, points and and everything else. Um, I but I, I do agree. It's it's definitely hurting the Islanders more than it's helping Toronto. Let's take a trip from all the way up north to Toronto to the west coast here and take a little Oilers talk here. Rachel, I'll let, let the mic go to you. And as we seem to ask ourselves for a bunch of years, is this the year? I will ask you again, is this the year? You know, we uh, you said it right there. We say it every year. Is this the year? And I don't know because we thought that last year was going to be the year because the year before they made it to the playoffs after – 11 years of not making it, and the year after, they totally blew it. They absolutely blew it. It was a complete slump year, and there's a lot of things that need to happen this year um, if they're going to make it back to the playoffs and if this is going to be the year. Basically, everybody needs to step up. You've got Connor McDavid and you've got Leon Dreisaitl. They're leading the team, but it's not going to be enough. Connor McDavid, he uh, the bomb.com as usual. He's got number one in points two years in a row. But Lucic needs to make a comeback. He scored one goal in the final 46 games last season. He ended the season with 34 points in 82 games. He's got a $42 million deal, and the Oilers cannot afford for him to flunk again. So Lucic needs to step up, and Paul Harvey needs to have a breakout year. He's entering the last year of his entry-level contract, um, and he only put up 12 goals and 20 points in 65 games last year. So those two need to step up. And Cam Talbot needs to step back up too. He needs to um, he needs to go back to where he was in the 2015-2016 year. So they need to make a rebound. So we talked about all these teams. Let's take a look at the broad picture here. While we would love to go through all your playoff teams and predictions, we are actually heading towards our break. So we will ask you to jump the gun and give us your cup prediction right off the bat. I am going to go my cup prediction, and when I say my cup prediction, I mean my friend's cup prediction because I didn't take enough time for this. I'm going to say San Jose Sharks beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. That's my prediction. We'll go to you, Eric, your cup prediction for this upcoming year. Yeah, that's cute, Jake. Um, I think that the, the real me. teams uh, in this one, I think you have to look right at the Winnipeg Jets. They showed it last year. They finally got a taste at the playoffs. They're going to get in there. Penguins will be back. Um, and the Penguins will beat the Winnipeg Jets and take their third or four. Eric, I think you're biased. I, uh, I don't think, think you're so. Do you think the Penguins? We didn't even have time to get to the Penguins. But I was going to say, this is we a weird cage. We didn't talk about the Penguins feel, or the Capitals. I feel offended <laughs> that we didn't talk about the Capitals or the Penguins. That's what I'm saying. Especially the Penguins since I'm here. But this team, Derek Broussard, going to be better. They added up on defense. Their defense is much better. And Matt Murray is having a huge back, bounce back year. His dad going through a lot of personal things last year. He was not at the top of his game losing his dad. Um, you know, the team's the team got some rest, which it really needed, and they know what it takes to win. They have the players. They still have everything. And if anything, they got better by getting rid of some dead weight in Connor Sheary and Matt Hunwick, sending them to another dead weight team, the Buffalo Sabres. Rachel, what are you thinking for your prediction? Uh, we all know what I would love to say, but I, Jake, I think I agree with you. I think the Sharks are looking really, 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 really good this year. I don't know if it's going to be the Jets that – go in or uh lightning rather but i think whoever it is i think i think the sharks are going to the finals the saying defense wins championships is no more we've seen it with the national predators you can have all the defense you want but having two top elite defensemen and not having a great forwards group 
isn't going to do it. Uh, that's why I don't think the San Jose Sharks will be winning a cup anytime. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Pretender or contender? We're going to talk about 10, 15 or so teams here, and I'm going to ask both of you. You have two options. They're either pretender or contender, and it doesn't have to be in the positive fashion. If you think that this team is pretending to be bad, i.e. the Pittsburgh Steelers, mm-hmm. or you think they're contending to be the worst team in the league, i.e. the Oakland Raiders, say that. See what going, See what goes well for them and see what doesn't. So we're going to kick it off with the first three undefeated teams, the yep. first ones being mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Rams. We talked about it pretty much across the board. I think we all agree that they're a contender. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> that, that, that was the easiest question of the night. Yeah. <laughs> Miami Dolphins sitting at 3-0, oh. top of the AFC East. Pretender or contender, Josh? Um, I think that they are contending to be a middle-of-the-pack team. Uh, I think that Tannehill is plugging into that offense uh, after, you know, being out all last season. Um, I mean, obviously he learned a little bit from Jay Cutler, but uh, things that you can learn from Jay Cutler are how to have a Very hot slim. and how to throw interceptions. So I think that Tannehill's offseason um, really showed him. Honestly, I think the one thing that's helping out the Dolphins is a year of um, a year of Kenyon Drake and um, who's that other running? Williams? Something? Um, Albert Wilson? So there are, there's a uh, obviously there's that that cycle of yeah. uh, Miami Dolphins running back. I mean, I also think. Frank Gore running. Yeah, yeah that's, it. that's true. So I mean, there's a there's a, a a host of people in that backfield, obviously. And you throw in uh, one of the best wide receiver cores in football when you like, look at okay. Amendola, Kenny Stills, uh, Jarvis, or not Jarvis no, Landry anymore. I uh, wouldn't confidently throw Danny Amendola in there, but I'll <laughs> I mean, take it in the slot. And then they've got um, Jakeem Grant. Jakeem Grant, the stud, and then who's that? Who's the other guy that they've got on the outside? It was uh, Jarvis Landry and Stills. Uh, who's the other guy? I mean, Albert Wilson's there wide out. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Whatever. Moving past that, I think that they, they will end up being a middle-of-the-pack team. I don't think they make the playoffs, but I think that they make... Oh, Parker. Devontae uh, Parker. Devontae Parker. Is he Hurtsville? I don't know if Something he is. Something like that. I, I, don't, I, I can confidently say I think 8-8 eight and eight is their, their upside. So are you saying pretender or contender? I think they're a pretender, at, definitely at this point. Yeah, I got to say pretender, too. I mean, they're not a bad team. I think the 3-0 start is definitely going to help them towards more of an 8-8 eight and eight record. I think before that, they probably would have went 5-11, and 6-10. And but I think they're definitely pretending to be... Uh, they're pretending to be 3-0. They're not a bad team. They're a serviceable middle-of-the-pack team, but they're definitely pretenders right now. Last year when we did this, Ahmed Quadri made the bold call that the Giants are the best team in the NFC East. They're full-blown contenders, and there's no one close to them. We saw how that happened, and we see how when you say stuff in this segment, this is where things get connected to you. So <laughs> I'm going to make one of those statements. I think Ryan Tannehill's a top-ten quarterback. I think Ryan Tannehill... Write it down right now. Write it down. I'm writing it down. Mark it in. I think when Ryan Tannehill's firing on all cylinders, he's a top-ten quarterback. I think this team is full contender. I think this team has potential to win the AFC East over the team that I support the most in New England Patriots. Come playoff time, this team's going to be absolutely garbage because they have no talent when it comes to playoffs. But we're not focused on that. I think this team is a contender. Ryan Tannehill is playing great. He's 74 attempts. 54 completions. He has seven touchdowns on the year, averaging over 200 yards per game. Kenyon Drake, 30 attempts, 104 yards, averaging about four yards per carry. And Kenny Stills, he's averaging 20 yards per reception. Yeah. I think this is a real contender team. Uh, uh, Look who they played. I mean, I mean, well, look who they're going to play still. The Bills, the Jets, who I hope the Jets are good, and the Patriots look bad. We'll talk about them. Look, I think the, the, the thing about, you said, you know, he's like, Talking about Tannehill, he's thrown, you know, over 200 yards. You know who else 
broke a school record for throwing over 200 yards in three games. Pat Kehoe. Pat Kehoe. <laughs> and look where we ended up against North Dakota State. So I think <laughs> I, I think that Tannehill, a converted wide receiver while at Texas A&M, uh, who ended up getting replaced by Johnny Manziel. Well, we don't have to talk about converting because you know Chris Hogan played lacrosse, yeah, well, as they say, every game. Yeah, yeah, okay, but the kid's an athlete. I, I, don't, I think that there's a difference between switching from wide receiver to quarterback and quarterback to wide receiver mm-hmm. like Edelman did. Well, let's go to the next one here, our final 3-0 and team. Let's make this really short, sweet, and to the point. Kansas City Chiefs, pl- pretender contender. 12-4, and four, the one best team. In At the season. minimum, 12-4. and four. Yeah. Patty Mahomes, yeah. total tank. Exactly. They'll go 12-4, t- 13-3, and hopefully they don't lose in the first round. Offensive uh, powerhouse, their defense kind of sucks. Not they're yeah. a unit. But they're going to keep scoring, so they're fine. Let's look at some other interesting teams here. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they're 2-1 and one against their loss against the Pittsburgh Steelers, where Ryan Fitzmagic almost had another magical game. He floats one to Mike Evans to make it interesting and can't convert a first down that leads to a punt. And the Steelers running out the clock. Nick, we'll start with you. Pretender or contender, Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Uh, when I look at this team, I think they're very comparable to Miami, ironically enough, who is sitting at 3-0. and And I'm going to say, in that case, they're pretender. Um, I definitely love Fitzpatrick, Fitzmagic, whatever you want to, Fitzmagic, whatever you want to call him. Uh, I think he should definitely be starting going forward. Obviously, Jameis Winston is coming back this week. Uh, I don't think that's a hard decision here. Fitzpatrick still has to play. But... Um, I, I don't think they just have enough pieces to get it done. They're in one of the toughest divisions in football with the Panthers, Saints, and Falcons. A 2-1 start is nice for them, but I see them as pretenders right now. Yeah, they're tied atop the top of that division at 2-1 and one with the Saints and Panthers. Falcons, after suffering that heartbreaker to the Saints last week, 1-2. and two. Uh, I don't see them making out of this division. Uh, do they snag a wild card? I also don't think that. I think they'll end up ranking third in this division behind the Saints and the Panthers with the Falcons very close. I mean, they started out 2-1, and one, but they might be a last-place team in this division come Week 17. Let's keep going here. Another 2-1 and one team, the Chicago Bears, with Mitch Trubisky and a name you might know, Khalil Mack, who is having a better defensive season than the entire Oakland Raiders defense combined. <laughs> this is a division that, if you told me any team was going to make it out to win, I'd believe you. This is perhaps the most um, deep division, maybe not uh, compared to the NFC South, because all four of those teams now with Fitzmagic balling out. Chicago Bears, pretender or contender? It's scary. I'm, an, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Oh. This is the division that I know best, and seeing Khalil Mack in that division, that defense is, you, you said that, that the Chiefs' offense is a unit. The Chicago Bears might have a better defense than the Kansas City Chiefs have an offense. Um, that, they are rallying behind Khalil Mack, and Bilal Nichols hasn't gotten much playtime, but, I mean, how can you not love a Matt a Nagy? Sack, right? how, can you not, how can you not love a Matt Nagy-led team Delaware, great, and Bilal Nichols, who's probably third-string defensive tackle, but still, I think that defense is incredible, and I, as a Detroit Lions fan, for the first time since Rex Grossman was their quarterback, <laughs> I am scared of the Chicago Bears. And I thought this team was going to compete regardless, of, before they got Cleo Mack, I said, I like how their offense looks this year, and I thought their defense was serviceable, but adding Cleo Mack to that team is such a force, and I think you can confidently say that this team is definitely going to contend just because how good their defense is. And I think Trubisky definitely has a lot to learn, but he definitely has the weapons around him, and he's going to progress a lot during the season. And I like the Bears as a contender moving forward. Let's mash together the 0-3 teams. The Oakland Raiders and Houston Texans on our list. We'll say pretender or contender. Which team is contending more for the number one pick? Well, let me say that I'm going to say that the Texans are pretending to be bad, I think, honestly. The weapons are there. Deshaun Watson just... I mean, his first couple of games weren't bad. He had a really good game against the Giants, but a couple of penalties uh, got the Texans, made them lose a couple of touchdowns there. So I think they're definitely pretending to be bad on that. And, and the Raiders, they're definitely contending for a top pick. Uh, bad first season for John Gruden, it's looking like so far. And 
uh, a team is going to have a tough season, I think. Yeah, John Gruden had been a head coach for 15 years. Um, obviously, he knows a lot about quarterbacks, but he's not helping his guy out there, Carr. I mean, obviously, Carr had a better week last week than the first two. Jordy um, Nelson, baby. <laughs> yeah, I dropped him in my fantasy league. Don't bring it up. But, no, and I think that's the thing. I, I think that uh, that Oakland could be looking at a 3-13 and 13 season if Lynch and Carr don't come around. So let's go to a few more teams the Cincinnati Bengals and the Baltimore Ravens, both sitting at 2-1 and one here. Let's start with the Bengals. Yeah. I personally think this team will be a pretender until Marvin jo- uh not Marvin Jones, um, Lewis. Marvin, Lewis. Marvin Lewis is gone from that head coaching position. Andy Dalton, mind you, since 2015 is third overall in the NFL in touchdowns thrown. He, but the two quarterbacks in front of him are Russell Wilson and Tom Brady. I don't think they're ever going to be a contender, so I'm going to put them at pretender. No, I think that um, I think that Bengals team, um, Marvin Lewis, like you said, I think that they haven't won a playoff game under him, and he's been there for what 16 years now. He's, I mean, he's too been there. long, <laughs> way too long. I yeah. think I, I think most of my my school age, he's been the head coach <laughs> of that team. Um, and, but I think that the Ravens have a real shot. I think that um, obviously Joe Flacco, Delaware guy, you can't bring that up enough, but. Um, I think that they have a legitimate shot, and I think, I mean, uh, Big Ben said it best. This defense, it feels like you got into five or six car accidents after the game. Um, and so this defense has always been really tenacious and, and put a lot of strength up front. So uh, I think they've got a, a real shot to, to come out of this division. Their receiving core looks good, too. Yeah. Blackout yeah. is now throwing to ball to John Brown, Michael Crabtree. Yeah. You have a decent core around him. Buck Allen in the backfield does yep. what he needs to do, and the defense, as usual, is great. We're going to go ahead to another team here, and this one is going to be the New England Patriots. They are 1-2 and two last game against the Detroit Lions. Tom Brady looked bad. <laughs> yeah, he looked on. rushed. He looked tired. There were only three wide receivers in uniform. Thankfully, hopefully, they're going to have Josh Gordon in uniform, and the week after that, they get Julian Edelman back. They didn't look too good. From my position as a fan, I'm still going to call them a contender. I think next week is their make or break against the Miami Dolphins, or this week, I should say. I think New England is a contender here, and I'm not really too nervous about it either. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, a very similar situation uh, happened a couple of years <laughs> back, um, and then they came back, and I think they, I think it was two or three years ago when year, they were honestly. in the Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, when like, they it, lost to the Chiefs, and then everyone's like, oh, well, New England's terrible, yeah, and yeah, they yeah. hoisted the trophy. Yeah, because Kareem Hunt popped off for goodness but I mean that's I mean that's the thing is like you look at this team and they always I mean sometimes they start off great mm-hmm. uh, but you know sometimes they have a rough start I mean sometimes they go 16 and 0 and sometimes they start one and two and they still end up in the playoffs every single year making it out of this division so yeah, it's, it's not very strong it doesn't matter how you get there just whether you get there or not and that's what the Patriots that's how they go I mean obviously a tough game from Brady but I wouldn't be worried in the slightest bit it's going to be a good big game, though, against the Dolphins, because if they lose this game, they'll be three and a half out of first. Obviously, the tiebreaker there with the Dolphins. So, uh, it is in Foxborough, and I think the Patriots will probably win that game. Let's take a look at one more team here, and this team I actually didn't put in the dock, but the Atlanta Falcons yeah. are at one and two, and I bring this up for one reason here, and I'm going to ask both of you this question. I asked it to Nick, and I'll ask it to you, Josh. When you think of wide receivers in the NFL, mm-hmm. Antonio Brown is one, and I don't think there's anyone that can change that. Coming past Antonio Brown, where do you rate Julio Jones in wide receivers in the NFL? Top five. Uh, I don't know if he's definitively number two. I think, obviously, you throw Odell in there. Um, Keenan Allen has a chance to bounce back. Uh, Mike Evans has a chance. Hopkins. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is a big one, too. Um, Thomas. 
but yeah, Michael Thomas down there in, in New Orleans. But yeah, I, I definitely think he's. I think it's saying that he's not top ten is just an absolute yeah. bogus hot take. Uh, saying that he's not top five is arguable. Uh, but if you if you put him out of your top ten on any given day, that that's just bogus. Let me throw some numbers yeah. at you because I did some research on Julio Jones. Yeah. He has less receptions than Ladanian Tomlinson did, and Ladanian Tomlinson was a running back. Yeah. He played one more year. Okay. He has one more touchdown than Ben Watson. Okay, tight end, yeah. How many years can we say that Julio Jones is the top two wide receiver? And I'm not slandering Julio Jones. If okay. I can pick a, run, a, a wide receiver, then I'm going to say I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to throw the ball up and hope it comes down. Besides probably Odell and A.B., I'm throwing that ball to Julio Jones, and that's yeah, yeah. pretty easy. Mm-hmm. What what? Where's the vibe from Julio Jones coming from? The stats really aren't there. The, he yeah. makes the highlight reel catches, and he comes off with a 300-yard game every season. Where's the vibe from Julio Jones? Matty Ice. I guess Matt Ryan that, makes him look good. That's it because this team is uh, this team always has a host of people in the backfield. I mean, it's Devontae Freeman, it's Tevin Coleman. Before that, it was Michael Turner. It was <laughs> you know. You know, you've got all these all these guys in the backfield, but yeah, who's your number two guy? Mohamed yeah. Sanu, Calvin Ridley popped off, yeah, and, and, now, and now it's two. Calvin Ridley. Yeah. Um, I think that eventually Calvin Ridley will be the guy in Atlanta. I don't I don't think that it's going to happen anytime soon. But it's the same thing with um, you look at the fans of that team. I think I think the hype comes from Matt Ryan and them trying to think that Matt Ryan is a top five quarterback, and I think it comes from the fans of these Atlanta fans wanting something to rally behind. Um, and I. I I, I mean, obviously the stats don't lie, um, but I mean this is a guy who, believe like you know if you want to say it or not, he's a superstar in the league, uh, just from the fact that he is one of the one of the quote unquote best at his position, uh, and it's a skill position. Yeah, I, I had originally when me and you talked, Jake, I had Julio at like five, but I could easily see him sliding down to seven or eight. But like Josh said, out of the top ten is delusional. So he'll definitely stay middle of the pack towards elite. So it just depends how the year goes for him. We'll see how it goes though.